0: Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning, please, and turn to Romans 6. I have not preached a Fourth of July message in five years. It occurred to me um, that year that there isn't really a tremendous amount of value in bringing up random secular holidays in the church, even if the focus is uh, necessarily on a biblical principle. And so I kind of stopped with any of the holidays that were not uh, exclusionary as it related to Christ, such as Christmas and Thanksgiving and Resurrection Sunday, uh, focusing in on the various other holidays as a general rule. But this year's a little different, uh, namely because liberty has been, for the past six months, really on the top of everyone's mind. The liberty of the citizens of the United States has been uniquely tested over the past six months. And this has put many of us, those who truly do love liberty, and really, in many ways, those who, uh, who know their history recognize that um, as Christians, it has been very much so the cause of liberty that enables us to live as we live, because once liberty goes away, um, Christianity is on the chopping block every time. Uh, it has put us in a place where we are perhaps on edge, nervous, and for some, even angry and frustrated. But one of the things that has become increasingly apparent over the course of the past six months as well in society is that there are very few people who truly understand liberty from the the context of God's design and liberty's intent. Liberty, even as it plays out in the secular sense, is a concept of God's design. Liberty is an outworking of God's character and God's design. And so as with anything that is an outworking of God's character and God's design, even when, it's, even when it plays out in a secular context, even when it is imperfectly implemented, it is only successful to the degree that it aligns with God's design. So we think of other things in secular society that align with God's design. We think of marriage, Uh, between one man and one woman for life. We think of the very fact of man and woman and how that aligns with God's design. We think of God's design for the family. We think of God's design for government. We think of God's design for the church. And while there are any number of implementations, we find that the most successful implementations in any context are the implementations, regardless of whether or not the person believes in God, the implementations that come closest to God's design. As anything in life, liberty only functions properly when it functions in the way that it is designed. And God has designed liberty to function in a certain way. Apart from that function, liberty becomes a liability in itself. It does not anymore take the form of liberty. It takes the form of libertinism. Unfettered libertinism gives way to chaos and eventual failure every time. It only works. Liberty only functions properly when it's paired with responsibility and when it works unto the end unto which God designed it to operate. Now, liberty is used in the Bible in many ways as a descriptor of one who is free, as a descriptor of one who is unbound. We see it used to describe men who have been released from jail, such as in Acts 26 32, when Agrippa and Festus state that had Paul not appealed unto Caesar, he would have been set at liberty. He would have been unbound from the fetters that he was in at that time. We see it used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, to describe a woman who is no longer bound by law to her husband after his death and thus is at liberty to marry whom she would. But what we also understand is that, by and large, when the concept of liberty is taught in the Bible, it's speaking of a spiritual freedom. Liberty, in the secular sense, is... is The same design as liberty in the spiritual sense, but if we don't understand liberty in the secular sense, we're not going to understand it in the spiritual sense. And if we don't understand liberty in the spiritual sense, we're not going to understand it in the secular sense. And what I'd like to do today is talk about our spiritual liberty, but not only for the sake of our spiritual understanding, because as I mentioned, since God is the one who designed liberty, when God gives us liberty, God's design in liberty is the only design of liberty. That whether we're talking the spiritual or whether we're talking the physical, whether we're talking the religious or whether we're talking the secular, liberty in concept is always the same. It's just applied in different ways. In any context of life, liberty is not defined certainly by what I think it is. Liberty is defined by what God has designed it to be. To this end today, we're going to take a look at liberty. And by understanding our liberty in Christ, by understanding what Paul teaches us about our freedom in Christ, we are perhaps going to understand what liberty looks like in every other aspect of life as well. Understand when it is, what it is, and how it is that it applies to us. And to define liberty, as I've asked you to do, we turn to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. One of the most important things to understand about liberty in any context is that liberty is not defined by an absence of authority. Liberty is not defined by the absence of authority of authority. Authority is not only given to us in this life, but authority is God given to us in this life, is it not? Authority is a God-ordained context within which we are called to live life, whether that is parent to child, whether that is husband to wife, whether that is government to citizen, whether that is uh, elder to church. Authority is a God-given context that that exists in life and if that is the case then we know that authority is not contradictory to liberty and we need to understand that because if we step outside uh, if 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 our definition of liberty steps outside of the context of authority well there may be a element of liberty there but we're getting into libertinism at that point we're getting into anarchy right and we are stepping beyond god's design Because we see that God has designed into the fabric of society and life authority. Society, church, family. Every institution that God has created was created with an authority structure in place and has also been created to be able to function within the context of freedom, within the context of liberty. So if liberty is not the absence of authority, then what distinguishes liberty and tyranny? If liberty and tyranny, if if, if the dividing line between liberty and tyranny is not the absence of authority, not the absence of someone telling you what to do, right, then what is liberty? How do we define liberty? And what we find in Scripture is that liberty is not defined as the absence of authority. Liberty is defined by the relationship that a person has to his authorities, In every context of biblical authority within the scope of the word of God, the authority is called to lead and to rule in a manner that is in keeping with a respect for the human dignity of the person who they lead and a respect for the God-given volition of that person. A respect for the human dignity that they are made in the image of God and therefore they have intrinsic value and a respect for the fact that God has given that person free will. Every biblical context for authority is rooted in these two concepts, that whether it's the the, the husband as he relates himself to his wife, whether it's the parent as he relates himself to his child, whether it's the, 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 the governor as it relates itself to his citizens, whether it's the pastor as he relates himself to his church, or whether it's God as he relates himself to His creation, this context is in place that the authority, the leader, recognizes the intrinsic worth of that individual and recognizes his God-given volition. If I may say it this way and take note of this because it's going to become very important later, the relationship between a free people and their authority is a relationship that is forged in mutual love and respect. The relationship between an oppressed people and their authority is a relationship forged in inconsiderate compulsion. And we see this throughout the scriptures as it relates to authorities. So the husband and wife relationship, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, Or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now, as I read this passage, let's remember what that word love is in the Bible. Let's remember how that word love is defined in the Bible. See, because the word love today has been completely lost, right? The true definition of love is completely lost in our culture. Our culture defines love as as an emotion that is rooted in how I'm treated by another person. It, It is entirely malleable based upon circumstances and feelings. But that's not what the Bible says love is, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We love him because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love in the biblical sense is an unconditional choice to do what is best for another, to do what is best for the object of my love, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. I'm going to do what's best for my wife, regardless of how she treats me. I'm going to do what's best for my wife, regardless of how, what kind of a day I'm having. I'm going to do what's best for my wife regardless of my self-interest and regardless of the circumstances I find myself in. That is is the aspirational love that the Bible Bible gives us. And this is an important context to claim. To the claim that a liberty-oriented authority relationship is a love-oriented authority relationship. It does not mean that that authority is giving you everything you want, right? Because that's not love. A love relationship with my wife, a love relationship with my children, a love relationship with my church is not a relationship where I'm looking at you and saying, okay, if you want it, I guess I'm just going to give it to you. That's not love because what my child wants may not be what is best for my child, right? And so it's very important if, if, if we use this concept of a, of a love-oriented authority relationship that we understand what love is in God's design so that we can understand the con- contextual relationship of authority in God's design. So we see this authority relationship between the husband and the wife. The husband has direct authority over the wife. We know that from Scripture. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. We, we, we know this. We know this well. And yet notice that this authority relationship is designed by God to be instituted in a manner that is in conformity to love, in conformity to a measure of liberty, where the wife is volitionally submitting herself to her husband as unto the Lord, and in turn, it's functioning best when she has the utmost confidence. It makes it easiest for her to do so when she has the utmost confidence that her husband is leading with her best interests in mind. It's much easier for a wife to yield her will to her husband, to yield the elements of of decision making and leadership to her husband, when she has the absolute utmost confidence that her husband has her best interests in mind, right? Now, she may not always agree with his decision, but if he has her best interests in mind, and she knows that, then it makes it significantly easier for her to do her part which is to submit what about fathers and children Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 and ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the lord Colossians 3:21 fathers provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged this is an authority relationship parents have direct authority over their children and yet this authority relationship is designed to be instituted in such a manner as to give children the freedom the freedom to operate within that context whereby they recognize that their parents love them and so they are going to submit to them because they know their parents have their best interest in mind. The children volitionally submit themselves to their parents because they know their parents love for them. This is the ideal, right? This is the design. It's not always how it plays out. You say, well, I don't know about that, Pastor. I don't know that I actually feel as though my parents always have my best interests in mind. Uh, Well, sometimes you've thought my parents don't have my best interests in mind because you don't understand. And you've learned later, thank God my parents told me to do that, made me do that, didn't let me do that. And there are other times where maybe your parents did have a selfish motive. It's not actually in your best interest that they made the decision that they made. It's in their best interest. It's to satisfy their fears or to to, to satisfy their concerns completely apart from your best interests. And that happens in a sinful society because we're sinful people, right? And we're never going to align perfectly, conform perfectly to God's design, but we do our best. But... In God's design, this is how the parent-child relationship is supposed to be, right? That the parent loves and has the absolute best interest of the child in mind, and this frees the child to trust their parents and so to operate in liberty while simultaneously not operating outside of authority. The permissive parenting model that says you just go do what you do as long as you don't hurt yourself and others is a dangerous model. And it has led to the kinds of society that we have today, in fact where people do not understand what freedom is. What about masters and servants? Ephesians 6, 9. Sorry, I didn't put the character return line feed there. And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, Heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. This is an authority relationship. The master has direct authority over the servant. And, of course, we know that in Scripture, this is not just an employee-employer relationship as we would think of it today, but there was going all the way from that employee-employer type idea to indentured servitude to slavery, right? And yet this authority relationship, as designed by God, is to be instituted in liberty, where the master recognizes that he has a master in heaven, and so he is going to treat those that are under him, those that are bound to him, with the dignity and, spe- and respect that is due unto them. And thus, the servant is able to volitionally submit himself to the master and, and happily do so because he knows that his master has his best interests in mind. Now, in Romans chapter 6, we see the language of authority. To describe the freedom in which the believer has been ushered from sin. That he that is dead is free from the servitude to sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul would flesh out this metaphor that the unbelieving man is the servant to sin and the law that being the ordinances specifically of the law of Moses, served to highlight, to bubble up to the top, to reveal the fact that man is under this slave master to sin and he cannot release himself. That even when God gives him the list of all the ways that he can operate in, in alignment with God unto righteousness, man is incapable of doing so in his own, on his own power, which shows the reality that we are slaves in our unbelieving state to sin right? That there is a compulsive relationship between me and my sin nature where the things that I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Sin is a harsh taskmaster who does not lead me in love, but leads me by compulsion and duty into that which is worst for me, into that which destroys me, and I have no means in and of myself to get past it. That is, that is tyranny. Sin is a picture of a tyrannical leader, a tyrannical master. So the law enters in, shows me my sin, shows me how far far short, shows me that I am bound to sin and I cannot unshackle myself and ushers me through condemnation and failure into a complete self-awareness of the harsh, the cold, the compulsive relationship that we have to this slave master who is sin until Christ enters the picture, right? He dies on the cross. He submits himself to that slavery of the punishment or the punishment for that, right? He submits himself to the authority of death. He submits himself to the authority of of sin in that sense. He overcomes death. He overcomes sin. He overcomes the grave. He claims that authority for himself. He effectively conquers our master and offers to us the opportunity to sit under a new master. Not to have no master, right? The Christian life is not a life free from authority. It is a life free from a harsh, uncaring, destructive master, and to place ourselves under, volitionally under the care and the love of a master who has our best interest in mind. And the Bible calls that freedom, liberty. So Christ makes provision for whosoever will to associate himself with the death of Jesus Christ by faith and so to judicially die and thus be freed from the authority of that master of sin and to be put under the authority of Christ. And this is being brought from bondage to liberty. Bondage enacted by the law revealing to us our incapacity to be free from the slave master into a liberty enacted by grace by which we serve a new master out of volitional love, a master who recognizes our worth and our dignity and who sees in us a worth that we may not even see in ourselves and who loves us unconditionally and leads us into that which is best for us as we respond to the depths of the love that he has already shown us in his intrinsic actions on the cross. Paul goes on then to say in verses 8 through 14, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as servants—excuse uh, me—as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Paul expresses the reality of this transition from sin uh, magnified in the law unto grace. And he uses the reality of this new authority structure as the basis to compel the believer to willingly submit himself to a new master, right? Rather than to place himself back under the condemnation and the guilt and the harsh, cold, unfeeling compulsion of sin. Do you see the liberty? Under the old master, sin espoused by the law, you and I were free from righteousness because of the compulsive nature of sin, righteousness and, it, and, and, and the desire to be free from these elements of sin that, that, that hold us in bondage and that lead us unto death. We were 100% incapable. They were 100% unattainable in the flesh. Enter grace and enter a new master. And we're freed from the compulsive nature of sin. And we are now allowed to operate completely within the scope of our volition under a master who has our best interest in mind. And that master will not twist our arm, but will show us what is best for us and will chasten us when we stray from him in love doing that which is best. And so that when I am under trial and when I am under temptation and when I am under suffering, I can know that because I have a God who loves me, because my foundation is unshaking, because what, the one thing I know, because I can contrast it with when I was in sin, the one thing I know is that this master who I am under is one who loves me and who has my best interests in mind I can thus align freely with him and find in that the joy and the peace of service. And so by virtue of this liberty, we are asked to willingly serve our new master, and as we do so, we find blessing. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Because I have been given liberty, does that mean that I should abuse that liberty? Because I have been given this liberty, does that give me license to go out and to abuse it? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or uh, of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Do you see the contrast between the hard, cold, compulsory master of sin under the law and the liberty that's reflected in the authority of Christ over us? Do you see how liberty is not about being freed from authority, but rather about the nature of my relationship to that authority? The U.S. has historically been a tremendous example of this. And and it's one of the reasons why we can relate to this principle so blessedly. And it's one of the reasons why the gospel has been able to spread so effectively in this country. Not just because we have the liberty to speak, but because people can identify with that liberty because of the history of uh, of, of the founding. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence begins this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and, that, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Do you see what they just enumerated? They identified something about liberty that they enumerated in their founding document that was that governments are instituted by God, that authorities are instituted by God as a means by which to allow liberty to prosper through, as they identified it, receiving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, we have the right to elect our leaders because in electing our leaders, we have the maximum confidence that our leaders will thus have our best interests in mind. And that gives us then the confidence to willingly submit ourselves to our leaders, knowing that they have our best interests in mind. Now, it is not only in a a democracy or in a democratic republic or or, or these sorts of systems where that can take place. Under a monarchy, under an aristocracy, this can happen as well, right? And if you go back and you read Greek philosophy, you find that the Greeks had uh, very meticulously thought through this. And they saw a cycle. And the cycle begins with a king, a, a, a strong man. And that strong man initially is a good leader, but then over time, because the strong man becomes entitled, over the generations, that strong man becomes a bad leader, and then that strong man is overcome by an aristocracy, by a group of good men, and that group of good men takes leadership, and that group of good men leads well until such time as that group of good men becomes entitled, their children and their children's children just become rich, entitled people. And then that aristocracy then gives way to a revolution whereby the people govern themselves until such time as the people, in their attempt to self-govern, fall into complete chaos out of a rejection for authority, at which time a strong man steps up and you have a new monarchy. And the Greeks saw this cycle, and they recognized that each one of these modes of government have virtue only in the degree to which the relationship between the authority and those under whom are governed is right. And that all three of these can have the right relationship and all three of these can, 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 can fall into a wrong relationship. And so historically, the United States has been a free people, not because we have been governed by laws not, or offices or powers or not at all, We have been a free people specifically because we have the right to choose our leaders, which means our leaders must govern with the respect to their people's needs. And if they don't do so, theoretically, we kick them out of office. And the leaders that govern in this manner, as they do so, the American people have had a unique willingness to comply with their ordained powers because they are governing in a manner that is consistent with liberty. And so the people willingly comply to law and order. And this is so very unique among the countries. And if you've traveled or if you've studied your your history or, or your geography, you know this. Compulsion through force is the hallmark of totalitarian regimes. But even in those regimes that would seek to give a general freedom of their people with movement, you find that the people very regularly do not respond through everyday law and order. One of the things that amazed me when I went to China as a distinguishing factor between the United States is that in the United States, I am amazed at how we follow traffic signs and signals. In the United States, if there's a red light, you stop. If there's a stop sign, you at least slow to a crawl, right? You, you, it, you, you, you regard the laws that are in place, though no one's watching. In China, one that way, they had all those. they had lights, they had signs, they had all this stuff. None of it mattered, not a bit. It was it was it was it was chaos on the streets. You, every man for himself. That's how they. Dro- Why? Is it just because we are uniquely compliant people? I can't say that anyone in history could say that the United States has uniquely compliant people. That's not the history of our country, but we are a country who have built into us a foundation by which we have a history of willingly complying with our authorities because we have had a history of being able to trust that our authorities have had, generally speaking, our best interests in mind. We have had a right relationship to our authorities, which means we are actually a free people. Well, but the Chinese, they don't, they don't, they don't regard those laws the police would never pull a person over for, for, for going through a red light in China. They must have more liberty. No, they don't. Because the relationship between them and their government is a relationship of compulsion and threat, not of governing by the consent of the governed. Do you see, do you see, the, see, what, I'm, you see what liberty is? Are you seeing th- th- this, this definition here? And so within the system, submission, within a proper liberty system, Submission is beneficial. It works to my benefit, not to my detriment. And again, wives, I hope you've seen this in your marriage. I hope you've seen how, as you have submitted to your husband, there's a benefit, not a detriment. If if not, then there's something wrong there. I hope, children, you've seen this that as you submit to your parents, you may not always agree, but as you submit to your parents, there there is benefit, not detriment. And if not, then there's something wrong there, right? Verses 20 to 23. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are made free from sin and we're uh, ushered into liberty in order to do what? Serve. Serve. Wait, 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 wait. My liberty in order to, yes, serve. Serve to become the servants of God because liberty is not being defi- is not defined by being free from authority but the relationship that you have to that authority under the bondage of sin the fruit of our compulsive submission to that harsh taskmaster was death and shame and guilt and condemnation and sorrow even those who gladly submit themselves to the harsh taskmaster of sin even those who not only commit sin, but take pleasure in them that do it. As Romans 1 says, they are finding for all of their trouble. They are finding for all of their effort, death and sorrow and shame and confusion and depression. We are not in a society that as we have become more libertine, as we we have become more licentious, is a society that's getting healthier, are we? We are in a society that is seeing, quote unquote, mental health go through the roof. What's going on there? Well, when sin is ravaging your mind and your body because you are living in, the, in, in, in the, the, the freedom that that sin gives you to be free from the shackles of, of moral constraint, of God's design, what is it producing in them but death? They're not free. This is not freedom. But under liberty. Liberty. Under the liberty of service to Christ, the fruit of our volitional submission to Christ is joy and peace and holiness and unto the end everlasting life. And this is a master that I can follow without reservation. This is freedom because the master gives me the liberty to exercise my volition, rewards me for my joyful submission, and I want to joyfully submit because I know that they have my best interests in mind. The relationship to my authority is built upon love and volition, not upon compulsion and selfishness. And this is God's design, whether we speak of the liberty of the soul, whether we speak of the liberty of the family, whether we speak of the liberty of the church, whether we speak of the liberty of the workplace, or whether we speak of the liberty of civil society. A free people are not a people who are free from authority. A free people are not a people who have no expectations or limitations put upon them. A free people are a people whose authority, who they can trust, are operating within their best interests, who see themselves as existing for the sake of those they lead, and so lead in a manner that is befitting the example of our Lord toward us. Love, Sacrifice and care. Hence the reason why in our country we have characteristically called our leaders public servants. They're not called public servants everywhere around the world. And they're not anymore. We know that, right? This is why we, because no one understands freedom. Our, 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 our politicians don't understand freedom. No one, there are very few that are public servants any longer. Which is why, this is why whether you're left, right, or center, and whether you whether you're looking at left, right, or center on the spectrum, there is a there's a dissonance in your soul as you see what people are doing. Why? Because left, right, or center, they don't care about you. They don't have your best interests in mind. They're, they're so 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 we're not we don't have the right relationship to foster true liberty. A free people who are rightly related to their liberties respond to proper leadership then with a willing submission as a part of what we would call a social contract. Backed by the natural and necessary force of law, but compelled not by this force of law, there's no amount of force of law that could actually hold back the tide if the people desire to rebel, but rather by mutual integrity, respect, and volition. Of course, in an unfree society, it can also be held back by fear, right? Now, there's one more very important thing that I have to mention about liberty, not from Romans 6, as we conclude our message today. I've told you what liberty is. I've sought to help you maybe think through the definition of liberty and why it is we are where we are as a country today, and perhaps where you are as a believer today, or maybe your family, why your family is where it is, or why, you know, whatever it might be. But as I mentioned at the beginning, Liberty has a particular objective. Liberty is not the chief virtue. Unfortunately today, among we who love liberty, we can get the feeling that liberty is the chief virtue, that all other virtues flow out of liberty. This is not what the Bible teaches. Liberty is a means unto an end. It is not an end in itself. Whether we speak in a spiritual sense or an institutional sense, family, church, civil government, liberty is not... Its own end. Liberty is not designed by God to be an end, it's designed by God to be a means. God has not given us the spiritual liberty simply for the sake of having spiritual liberty. God has given us spiritual liberty unto a specific and intended purpose. Institutional liberty is not an end in and of itself, but it exists unto a specific familial, ecclesiastical, and societal or civil purpose. And we find this purpose in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Liberty is not an end unto itself. Liberty, when at once I see my liberty in Christ as freedom to step outside of the boundaries of my authority, when at once I see liberty as a license to do whatever I want, even as the libertarian idea would espouse, that liberty is the freedom to do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt another person, when at once that is my definition of liberty, once I attempt to live outside of the context not just of the, the, of liberty, but of the purpose of liberty, liberty will eventually fail. It will crumble under the weight of itself. It will devolve into chaos, it will devolve into biting and devouring. And that's what we're seeing in our society today. We are seeing that liberty has become license and libertinism. You are free to do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And the problem is that breaks down all of the structure of liberty and it is bringing about biting and devouring one another. Consuming one another. Now, this is taught to the church. I am extending this principle. This is is not a political principle here in Galatians 5. This is a spiritual principle. But we're seeing it play out as people lose perspective on what liberty is intended to do. Liberty is not license. License is conducive to rebellion, hatred, and evil, and it will bring chaos, and chaos will inevitably lead the human heart back into tyranny every single time because there will be a desperate attempt to find order in the chaos, and you need a strong man to do it once Liberty breaks down. Liberty does not exist as an end in itself. Liberty exists as a framework within which to love and serve one another. The liberty of the family authority structure does not exist for the father to lord himself over his wife and his children. That will build resentment. That will build chaos. That will build biting and devouring. Liberty within the family structure is intended to be led by father through mutual love and respect that we might love and serve one another. The liberty of the workplace authority structure does not exist for the master to lord himself over his servant, nor for the servant to be left to his own will and his own way, but a structured environment led by the master, fostering mutual love and respect unto productivity and success, where the master uh, is, is trustworthy enough that, the, that the, 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 the servants align themselves underneath his vision and then the vision is a mutual productivity and success as they go in the same direction. And the liberty of civil authority structure does not exist for the government to lord itself over its citizens, to forcibly bring the citizens under some compulsion. And unfortunately, that's what our system has devolved itself into, Right? We get four to eight years of one president and that side of the country forces themselves on the other side. Then we get four to eight years of the other president and the other side of the country forces themselves on this side, right? It's just ping pong. You might thus understand then why our society is more and more moving toward chaos. As our society has taken the position that liberty means that a man can do what he will, the abandonment of moral principles, Moral principles of sexuality, moral principles of order, moral principles of authority, moral principles of fiscal responsibility, name it. The abandonment of moral principles of personal responsibility and accountability, it has put society into a state of natural and unavoidable chaos. And if liberty-minded leaders are to restore this liberty, if they don't restore this liberty through law and order, law and liberty, the people of this country will eventually bite and devour one another, and it will lead to a strong man. It has to. But let's bring this concept literally closer to home. First, with the home. Fathers, how is your home? We might want to dwell on this as it relates to our country, and, and, and that is what brought this thing to mind to begin with, to figure out where, 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 what was missing in our understanding of liberty. But Father, as, 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 we, as we try to take something from this message, I don't want it to be a political rallying cry. I want it to be a spiritual rallying cry. Fathers, how is your home? Is it an environment of liberty? Where you see your authority as existing in order to love and serve, not to compel and demand? Are you teaching your children what spiritual liberty looks like through the structure of your home and leadership? Where you exist to serve your wife, where you exist to serve your children, where this is what leadership and authority means to you, that you are a familial servant in that sense. Now you're the leader. You set the rules. Can your wife and children get under those rules happily and volitionally knowing that you have their best interests in mind? Is there spiritual freedom in your home? What about true spiritual liberty as the Bible speaks of it? This liberty begins with an acceptance of the gospel and indeed cannot exist until you're freed from the bondage of sin and law. Have you been freed from the bondage of sin and of the law? Do you still rest under that bondage? Have you never come to the place in your life where you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, where you have been delivered from the bondage of sin and freed to walk in newness of life? just as one cannot truly understand love until they have received that love, just as one cannot truly understand forgiveness until they can see it through the lens of Christ's forgiveness, you will never truly understand liberty until you understand it through the lens of what Christ has done on the cross. And once you have accepted the gospel, the call of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that we reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive unto Christ, that we live in that liberty, that we would, as Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Freed from the compulsion of sin that separates us from the life of God, freed from the legal demands upon our souls to serve God in love, freed from the sting of death to serve God without fear. Are you living in that liberty today? Do you see God for who he is, a loving master who has your best interest in mind and so you are volitionally, joyfully aligning yourself with his precepts and principles because you know, as you know anything, if you know anything, you know that you can trust him to have your best interest in mind. Or have you as a believer been living self-bound into the condemnation of sin from which you have been freed? Do you live in the blessed liberty of knowing that God has in love secured your righteousness through the blood of his son, that you are free from sin, or are you placing yourself back under that bondage? Are you literally walking back and slapping the shackles back on your wrists and living in the bondage to sin that you've been freed from because you do not understand or trust the master who has freed you? Let us not yield that freedom lightly. Let us not allow the deceits and the allures of sin to lull us back into bondage. May I I encourage you this way? To whatever degree you have felt this tremendous conflict in your heart and urging as it relates to you seeming, perhaps as, as, as I have, seeming to see this country as it was and ought to be and has been designed to be, slipping away. And the, that, the angst in your heart, the, the urgency in your heart that is there anything that I can do? What could be done? May I encourage you to translate that same urgency into the difference between your relationship with the Lord and with sin? As you look into your heart, do you see yourself slipping into bondage? Or, or have you been living in bondage? with the same fervency and urgency that you might desire to defend the liberties that we have enjoyed in this country, would you translate that urgency into a repentance and a determination to align yourself with the good master of Christ? And if your urgency to see freedom in this country is greater than your urgency to live in spiritual freedom, there's something imbalanced there. Because this country, as every country in history, will pass away. There's not one civilization, there's not one country, there's not one society that has stood forever. It's not going to happen. But the things of Christ are everlasting. Are your priorities in order? Do you live in that same urgency? And finally, let us be utterly determined to live our lives fully within the purpose and the intent of liberty, that liberty is not intended to be used as a cloak of maliciousness, as 1 Peter 2.16 says. Liberty is not intended to be used as an occasion to pursue my own lusts, as Galatians 5.13 says. But much to the contrary, liberty is a means to a blessed end. And the blessed end unto which liberty points is that we might love and serve God, 1 Peter 2:16, and love and serve one another, Galatians 5:13. 5, 5, and if this is not the end unto which your liberty is taking you, then you aren't that then then you aren't living its purpose. You are wasting your liberty. And where liberty loses its purpose, what we know from history is that it will soon lose its presence. You don't love and serve one another, that harsh taskmaster of sin is going to slip in. You're going to find yourself back in bondage. I mentioned Galatians 5, 1 already. I leave you with that exhortation. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Speaking in Galatians 5 about the bondage of the letter of the law, which would engender in us the bondage of sin. Let us stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And then let us determinedly make full use of our liberty to serve the Lord with gladness, to serve one another with joy. And by the way, that's the same solution for our society. This is why the Founding Father said that, that the... Country as it exists cannot function apart from a moral people, because only a moral people will do what is best for my my brother at my expense. Only moral people, only in a moral country will leaders see themselves as servants rather than as autocratic leaders, autocratic overlords. But it's the same in the spiritual. Only through loving and serving one another will we be able to rightly relate ourselves to the liberty that we have in Christ and so sustain it rather than lose it. And God help us that we might not lose the liberty which is the inheritance and the birthright of we who are in Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.